Chapter 1, Part 3 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2, by Alexander Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Gillespie. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2, by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 1, Part 3. The great affection which the English felt for the Duke of Monmouth, and his own conviction that the people only needed a leader to induce them to shake off the yoke of James II, led him to undertake an enterprise which might possibly have succeeded had it been carried out with prudence. He landed at Lyme in Dorset with only 120 men. 6,000 soon gathered round his standard. A few towns declared in his favor he caused himself to be proclaimed king, affirming that he was born in wedlock, and that he possessed the proofs of the secret marriage of Charles II and Lucy Waiters, his mother. He met the royalists on the battlefield, and victory seemed to be on his side when, just at the decisive moment, his ammunition ran short. Lord Grey, who commanded the cavalry, beat a cowardly retreat. The unfortunate Monmouth was taken prisoner, brought to London, and beheaded. The details published in the Siecle de Louis XIV as to the personal appearance of the masked prisoner might have been taken as a description of Monmouth, who possessed great physical beauty. Saint-Foix had collected every scrap of evidence in favor of his solution of the mystery making use even of the following passage from an anonymous romance called The Loves of Charles II and James II, Kings of England. The night of the pretended execution of the Duke of Monmouth, the king, attended by three men, came to the tower and summoned the duke to his presence. A kind of loose cowl was thrown over his head, and he was put into a carriage into which the king and his attendants also got and was driven away. Saint-Foix also referred to the alleged visit of Saunders, confessor to James II, paid to the Duchess of Portsmouth after the death of that monarch, when the Duchess took occasion to say that she could never forgive King James for consenting to Monmouth's execution, in spite of the oath he had taken on the sacred elements at the deathbed of Charles II, that he would never take his natural brother's life, even in case of rebellion. To this the priest replied quickly, the king kept his oath. Hume also records this solemn oath, but we cannot say that all the historians agree on this point. The Universal History by Guthrie and Gray, and the Histoire d'Angleterre by Rapin, Thoyra, and de Barrow do not mention it. Further, wrote Saint-Foix, an English surgeon called Nelaton, who frequented the Café Procope, much affected by men of letters, often related that during the time he was senior apprentice to a surgeon who lived near Port Saint-Antoine, he was once taken to the Bastille to bleed a prisoner. He was conducted to this prisoner's room by the governor himself and found the patient suffering from violent headache. He spoke with an English accent, wore a gold-flowered dressing gown of black and orange, 
and had his face covered by a napkin knotted behind his head. The story does not hold water. It would be difficult to form a mask out of a napkin. The Bastille had a resident surgeon of its own, as well as a physician and apothecary. No one could gain access to a prisoner without a written order from a minister. Even the viaticum could only be introduced by express permission of the lieutenant of police. This theory met at first with no objections, and seemed to be going to oust all the others, thanks perhaps to the combative and restive character of its promulgator, who bore criticism badly, and whom no one cared to incense, his sword being even more redoubtable than his pen. It was known that when St. Mar journeyed with his prisoner to the Bastille, they had put up on the way at Palto, in Champagne, a property belonging to the governor. Freron, therefore, addressed himself to a grand nephew of St. Mar, who had inherited this estate, asking if he could give him any information about this visit. The following reply appeared in the Aene Littraire, June. 1768, as it appears from the letter of M. de Saint-Trois, from which you quote that the man in the iron mask still exercises the fancy of your journalists, I am willing to tell you all I know about the prisoner. He was known in the islands of St. Marguerite and at the Bastille as La Tour. The governor and all the other officials showed him great respect and supplied him with everything he asked for that could be granted to a prisoner. He often took exercise in the yard of the prison, but never without his mask on. It was not till the siècle of M. de Voltaire appeared that I learned that the mask was of iron and furnished with springs. It may be that the circumstance was overlooked, but he never wore it except when taking the air or when he had to appear before a stranger. M. de Blainvilliers an infantry officer who was acquainted with M. de Saint-Marc, both at Pignerol and Saint-Marguerite, has often told me that the lot of Latour greatly excited his curiosity and that he had once borrowed the clothes and arms of a soldier whose turn it was to be sentry on the terrace under the prisoner's window at Saint-Marguerite and undertaken the duty himself that he had seen the prisoner distinctly, without his mask, that his face was white, that he was tall and well-proportioned, except that his ankles were too thick, and that his hair was white, although he appeared to be still in the prime of life. He passed the whole of the night in question, pacing to and fro in his room. Blaine Villiers added that he was always dressed in brown, and that he had plenty of fine linen and books, and that the governor and the other officers always stood uncovered in his presence until he gave them leave to cover and sit down, and that they often bore him company at table. In 1698, M. de Saint-Marc was promoted from the governorship of the Ile Saint-Marguerite to that of the Bastille. In moving thither, accompanied by his prisoner, he made his estate of Palteau a halting place. The masked man arrived in a litter which preceded that of M. de Saint-Marc, and several mounted men rode beside it. The peasants were assembled to greet their liege lord, 
M. de Saint-Marc dined with his prisoner, who sat with his back to the dining-room windows, which looked out on the court. None of the peasants whom I have questioned were able to see whether the man kept his mask on while eating, but they all noticed that M. de Saint-Marc, who sat opposite to his charge, laid two pistols beside his plate, that only one footman waited at table, who went into the antechamber to change the plates and dishes, always carefully closing the dining-room door behind him. When the prisoner crossed the courtyard, his face was covered with a black mask, but the peasants could see his lips and teeth and remarked that he was tall and had white hair. M. de Saint-Marc slept in a bed placed beside the prisoners. M. de Blainvilliers told me also that as soon as he was dead, which happened in 1704, he was buried at St. Paul's, and that the coffin was filled with substances which would rapidly consume the body. He added, I never heard that the masked man spoke with an English accent. saint foix proved the story related by M. de Blainvilliers to be little worthy of belief, showing by a circumstance mentioned in the letter that the imprisoned man could not be the Duc de Beaufort. Witness the epigram of Madame de Choisy. M. de Beaufort longs to bite and can't, whereas the peasants had seen the prisoner's teeth through his mask. It appeared as if the theory of Saint-Foix were going to stand when a Jesuit father named Griffet, who was confessor at the Bastille, devoted chapter 13 of his Traité différent sorte de prévé que servent à établir la vérité dans l'histoire to the consideration of the Iron Mask. He was the first to quote an authentic document which certifies that the man in the Iron Mask about whom there was so much disputing really existed. This was the written journal of M. Dujanka, King's Lieutenant in the Bastille in 1698 from which Père Griffet took the following passage. On Thursday, September the 8th, 1698, at three o'clock in the afternoon, M. de Saint-Marc, the new governor of the Bastille, entered upon his duties. He arrived from the islands of Sainte-Marguerite, bringing with him in a litter a prisoner whose name is a secret and whom he had had under his charge there and at Pignoron. This prisoner, who was always masked, was at first placed in the Bassinaire Tower, where he remained until the evening. At nine o'clock p.m., I took him to the third room of the Bertaudière Tower, which I had already furnished before his arrival with all needful articles, having received orders to do so from M. de Saint-Marc. While I was showing him the way to his room, I was accompanied by M. Rosarget, who had also arrived along with M. de Saint-Marc, and whose office it was to wait on the said prisoner, whose table is to be supplied by the governor. Dianca's diary records the death of the prisoner in the following terms. Monday, 19th October, 1703. The unknown prisoner, who always wore a black velvet mask, and whom M. de Saint-Marc brought with him, from the Ile Sainte Marguerite, and whom he had so long in charge, felt slightly unwell yesterday 
on coming back from Mass. He died today at 10 p.m. without having a serious illness. Indeed, it could not have been slighter. M. Guiro, our chaplain, confessed him yesterday, but as his death was quite unexpected, he did not receive the last sacraments, although the chaplain was able to exhort him up to the moment of his death. He was buried on Tuesday, the 20th of November, at 4 p.m., in the burial ground of St. Paul's, our parish church. The funeral expenses amounted to 40 livres. His name and age were withheld from the priests of the parish. The entry made in the parish register, which Père Griffet also gives, is in the following words. On the 19th November, 1703, Marcialli, aged about 45, died in the Bastille, whose body was buried in the graveyard of St. Paul's, his parish, on the 20th instant, in the presence of M. Rossarget and of M. Real, Surgeon Major of the Bastille, signed Rossarget, Real. As soon as he was dead, everything belonging to him, without exception, was burned, such as his linen, clothes, bed and bedding, rugs, chairs, and even the doors of the room he occupied. His service of plate was melted down, the walls of his room were scoured and whitewashed, and the very floor was renewed from fear of his having hidden a note under it or left some mark by which he could be recognized. Père Griffet did not agree with the opinions of either Langrange, Chancel, or Saint-Foy, but seemed to incline toward the theory set forth in the memoir de Perse, against which no irrefutable objections had been advanced. He concluded by saying that before arriving at any decision as to who the prisoner really was, it would be necessary to ascertain the exact date of his arrival at Pignerol. Saint-Foy hastened to reply, upholding the soundness of the views he had advanced. He procured from Arras a copy of an entry in the registers of the cathedral chapter, stating that Louis XIV had written with his own hand to the said chapter that they were to admit to burial the body of the Comte de Vermandois, who had died in the city of Courtrai, that he desired that the deceased should be interred in the center of the choir, in the vault in which lay the remains of Elizabeth, Comtesse de Vermandois, wife of Philip of Alsac, Comte de Flanders, who had died in 1182. It is not to be supposed that Louis XIV would have chosen a family vault in which to bury a log of wood. Saint-Foix was, however, not acquainted with the letter of Barbizou dated the 13th, August, 1691, to which we have already referred as a proof that the prisoner was not the Comte de Vermandois. It is equally a proof that he was not the Duke of Monmouth, as Saint-Foix maintained, for a sentence was passed on the Duke of Monmouth in 1685, so that it could not be of him either that Barbizou wrote in 1691. The prisoner whom you have had in charge for twenty years. In the very year in which Saint-Foix began to flatter himself that his theory was successfully established, Baron Heiss brought a new one forward in a letter dated Falsberg, 
28th June, 1770, and addressed to the Journal Encyclopédique. It was accompanied by a letter translated from the Italian, which appeared in the Histoire Abrégée de l'Europe, by Jacques Bernard, published by Claude Jordan, Leiden, 1685-87, in detached sheets. This letter stated that the Duke of Mantua, being desirous to sell his capital, Cassel, to the King of France, had been dissuaded therefrom by his secretary and induced to join the other princes of Italy in their endeavors to thwart the ambitious schemes of Louis Fourteenth. The Marquis d'Arcy, French ambassador to the court of Savoy, having been informed of the secretary's influence, distinguished him by all kinds of civilities, asked him frequently to table, and at last invited him to join a large hunting party, two or three leagues outside Turin. They set out together, but at a short distance from the city were surrounded by a dozen horsemen who carried off the secretary, disguised him, put a mask on him, and took him to Pignerol. He was not kept long in this fortress, as it was too near the Italian frontier, and although he was carefully guarded, it was feared that the walls would speak. So he was transferred to the Ile Sainte Marguerite, where he is at present in the custody of M. de Saint Mar. This theory, of which much was heard later, did not at first excite much attention. What is certain is that the Duke of Mantua's secretary, by name Maffioli, was arrested in 1679 through the agency of the Abbey de Strade and M. de Catena, and was taken with the utmost secrecy to Pignerol, where he was imprisoned and placed in charge of M. de Saint-Mar. He must not, however, be confounded with the man in the iron mask. Catena says of Maffioli in a letter to Louvois, no one knows the name of this knave. Louvois writes to Saint-Mar, I admire your patience in waiting for an order to treat such a rogue as he deserves, when he treats you with disrespect. Saint-Mar replies to the minister, I have charged Blainvilliers to show him a cudgel and tell him that with its aid we can make the froward meek. Again, Louvois writes, The clothes of such people must be made to last three or four years. This cannot have been the nameless prisoner who was treated with such consideration, before whom Livois stood bareheaded, who was supplied with fine linen and lace, and so on. Altogether, we gather from the correspondence of St. Mar that the unhappy man alluded to above was confined along with a mad Jacobin, and at last became mad himself and succumbed to his misery in 1686. Voltaire, who was probably the first to supply such inexhaustible food for controversy, kept silence and took no part in the discussions. But when all the theories had been presented to the public, he set about refuting them. He made himself very murray in the seventh edition of Questions sur l'Encyclopédie distribuée en forme de dictionnaire, over the complacence attributed to Louis XIV in acting as police sergeant and jailer for James II 
William III, and Anne, with all of whom he was at war. Persisting still in taking 1661 or 1662 as the date when the incarceration of the masked prisoner began, he attacks the opinions advanced by Lagrange Chancel and Père Griffet, which they had drawn from the anonymous memoir secret pour servir à l'histoire des Perses. Having thus dissipated all these illusions, he says, let us now consider who the masked prisoner was and how old he was when he died. It is evident that if he was never allowed to walk in the courtyard of the Bastille or to see a physician without his mask, it must have been lest his too striking resemblance to someone be remarked. He could show his tongue, but not his face. As regards his age, he himself told the apothecary at the Bastille a few days before his death that he thought he was about 60. This I have often heard from a son-in-law to this apothecary, M. Marsalman, surgeon to Marshal Richelieu, and afterward to the regent, the Duc d'Orléans. The writer of this article knows perhaps more on the subject than Père Griffet, but he has said his say. End of chapter 1